Chelsea Fairless and welcome back to another episode of the Every Outfit podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Nothing much to report. Yeah, I have nothing going on. Should we just cut the banter and get straight into shit? Let's do it. I mean, I finally saw John Waters Academy Museum show. Oh, thank God. It's been up for months. What did you think? I absolutely loved it. I probably loved it more than the group of octogenarians who were there on a retirement home field trip. Who I don't think were expecting this. I guess that would be a weird vibe if you were just an average tourist going to like learn about the history of film and stuff. Yeah, imagine your boomer children have put you in a retirement home and they're like, guess what? You can go out today to the Academy Museum. And they're like, God, I remember that Clark Gable. And then it's like, what the fuck is this? Well, you know what? I think the Casablanca exhibition is still there, so I'm sure they enjoyed that. They did. I mean, we followed them from the John Waters exhibit is on the fourth floor all the way down, and they seemed horrified by everything from, (laughs) you know, Divine's costumes to Arnold Schwarzenegger's, like, prop head from Terminator 2. They seemed befuddled (laughs) by all of it. Yeah, that show was way more fashion-heavy than I anticipated. They had pretty much everything from Desperate Living on, and just, like, the manic themselves were so funny like the mannequins for Selma Blair's character in a dirty shame that had like the hugest tits in the world yeah it's crazy to think his last film was 20 years ago his last written and directed film obviously Hairspray was remade in 2007 he's just been existing on vibes and college talks and (laughs) best-selling novels for the last 20 years yeah actually he's a play in the city winery that we're playing in New York a few days after so guys if you have tickets for that and you want to come back to see John Waters do it that is our recommendation I mean see us first see us first then go see john waters i really loved the part of that exhibit which was devoted to like not his films but his acting appearances and various things like they had like his appearance on search party law and order svu the scene in seed of chucky where he gets murdered and then they had the seed of chucky like the doll that like kind of looks like a busted season two Miranda. If you've ever sent us a meme with a, yes, demented Miranda looking puppet, it is from Seed of Chucky and that puppet murders John Waters. My favorite thing going back to the retiree group is one of the women that was pushing one of the octogenarians was like, oh, I know him from this. And it was the clip from the creep song, the Lonely Island creep that he opens that. And she's like, oh, the guy from the Nicki Minaj song. Got it. (laughs) To go back to the beginning of the exhibit, which goes through all of John Waters' career, you enter a church. Yeah, a demented church (laughs) with stained glass of John Waters and all of the John Waters characters, and you get a montage of his films. I got some inspiration for our live show from watching that. I thought that too. I went home last night and I watched his live show from 2006, A Filthy World. Yes. Which I think he still tours, which is brilliant. Work smarter, not harder. And I was like, wow, definitely what we do now through osmosis came through me watching the special so much. I think between watching that and Carrie Fisher's one woman show, Wishful Drinking, which I saw on Broadway, like these things made me the person that I am today for better or for worse. I believe Carrie Fisher does a wonderful demented PowerPoint to answer her young daughter, young Billy Lord's question at the time, if I date this boy, is it technically incest? So, so good. And if you haven't seen this, it then became an HBO special, which you can watch hopefully on Max, but who knows really these days. Maybe it'll be on Netflix. (laughs) Yeah, they might license it. It it is a weird thing when I'm on Netflix trying to watch things for this podcast and I'm like, wait, Six Feet Under is on here as well? (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that I was really sad that I didn't see in that exhibit was video footage from John Waters' little scene modeling debut 
in an early 90s come to Garcon fashion show. Right. There's no good footage of it on the internet. There's no good photographs of it that I've ever seen. But I think it would have really added something. And frankly, we don't get enough directors modeling on the runway. I think there's only a handful. Well, we just got Vim Vendors in that Yoji Yamamoto show which was really fun. Right, and I think super randomly Taika Waititi was in an Hermes <laughs> show a year ago. He was, he was. And there's certain people like Sofia Coppola was in a DKNY show in the 90s. Same with Vincent Gallo. He was in an Anna Sui show. But I think both of those shows predated them being directors. You would think like Julian Schnabel would be in a Prada show, but I doubt it. The thing is, some of them have been in print ads, like Pedro Almodovar was in a Prada ad. Saint Laurent did that whole ass campaign that was so amazing last year with like Jim Jarmusch, David Cronenberg, Abel Ferrara, etc. But it's like, we need Jarmish on the runway. Stop putting Jarmush actors in Prada shows. Get Jarmush. Get the man himself. It is amazing that John Waters in that Comme de Garçon show isn't in his retrospective because he's such an amazing archivist of himself. That was also really inspiring for... I'm not saying you and I will ever have a museum show, but it is inspiring to be like, yeah, keep all of your shit. He has his father's financial ledgers where his dad kept track of all the money that he lent John Waters for his first short films in the late 1960s. I love the title of his first short, which I believe is Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. I should make that my Instagram bio. I'm surprised that Eat Your Makeup wasn't a whole song or something. Yes, he's very good at naming films. But it's cool because in that show, you see some of the inspiration behind that. Like you see the tragic lesbian magazine, Desperate Living, that it's inspired the name of that film. He was also such an innovator of the experience of going to movies. Was it, it's polyester, right? Where he recreated- Smell-O-Vision. Yeah, Smell-O-Vision for when you went to the movie. So he recreated that for polyester. Well, and you saw other references for that. Like apparently there was a scratch and sniff issue of Hustler? Yes, yeah, right, right. <laughs> we need to find that and buy that. And you know, guys, maybe we'll even sniff it on the pod. See what a 40-year-old fake vagina smells like. Okay, hold on. So <laughs> we're not going to film it. What's a worse experience than talking about visual things on a podcast? Let us describe us <laughs> smelling something on a podcast. Also, Tragically, I think that due to his appearance on Red Scare, I don't think he will allow himself to be interviewed by two monotone white women <laughs> ever again. I know. I feel like if we asked to stay at his place in P-Town, he would have been more amenable. Honestly, we would have known better to ever oh, right, ask. Right, because he was like, no, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Uh, I'm just jealous of everyone that's on his Christmas card list. It's a kind of FOMO that I forget about until it happens to me around the same time every single year. You bring up a great point because I will say the two things that I felt were missing from the show were his own artwork, which I would put the Christmas cards in that because infamously, if you give a shit about the things we give a shit about, in the mid-90s, his Christmas card was Steve Buscemi dressed as him. And that was the Christmas card. It's not an exclusive list because I know people that are on it. And when you're on John Waters' Christmas list, like, you're on it for life. It's like the Tom Cruise cake yes, list. Yes, exactly. Which I would also love to be on. But as I've told you, I can get you the Tom <laughs> Cruise cake. It is in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> That bakery is right by my dad's office. Do you know what really delights that woman? If you don't ask for that cake. If you literally ask for anything but that cake. <laughs> She's like, oh my God, you want cupcakes? Please, yes. I'm sure. So shall we move on to something that's actually in the dock? It kind of feels like... We should play the bad news theme. Yeah, let's play the bad news theme. <laughs> bad news! <laughs> Only on every outfit. By the way, our incredibly talented friend Lauren Kramer, who did the bad news theme, has a new music video out this week, directed by himself, 
called Glove Maker. Check it out. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Very, very fab. Yeah, I think this is better called Bad News versus Hot Topics because in a way it's lukewarm topics at this point. Right. I guess we should get into this Nicki Minaj, Megan the Stallion feud. On Friday, Megan the Stallion, I'm sorry, Megan the Stallion <laughs> released the track. It starts before that. In case you've been avoiding this feud. Okay. <laughs> like I have. Have you? Because my Nicki Minaj group chat, Real Thick Vagina, has been blowing up all week about this. Well, it's something that I would say before last Friday, I didn't have an opinion on, and now I do. Basically, it started because on Nicki Minaj's last album, she had a song called FTCU, and there was a lyric that said, stay in your Tory Lane bitch, which is a reference to Tory Lanez, who shot Megan in the foot, who is currently serving a 10-year sentence. So Megan then released Hiss, And in that song, she said, these hoes are mad at Megan's law, which is the law that requires information about sex offenders to be publicly available. Hiss is the sound that a snake makes before it strikes. Okay, we know that, I'm just saying. (laughs) It's a diss track. It is. I was going to say, hiss also rhymes with diss, of which this is. But it doesn't really go deep into Nikki. Like, that's literally all she said. It's very general hiss. Well, yeah, she also didn't say Nicki Minaj's name by name. So Nicki Minaj and most of the internet took that lyric to refer to Nicki's own husband, who is a registered sex offender, who even faced charges for not registering as one when he moved to California. Well, also her brother is a convicted pedophile rapist and is currently in jail. So it's a lot of family stuff for Nicki is tied up in this. But because Megan didn't say her name directly, she could also be referencing, I don't know, Diddy. Megan releases this track and then goes on The Breakfast Club and doesn't say who the song is in reference to, but says a hit dog is gonna holler. That's it. Whoever feels it is gonna feel it. And then for 72 hours, Nicki Minaj would not stop talking about it. It was truly terrifying, some of those Instagram lives. She referred to Megan as Fragment Foot, referenced her dead mother, her drinking problem, sleeping with other women's men. At a certain point during this insanity, the barbs found where Megan's mother's grave was and were going to desecrate it, which is something that Nicki Minaj didn't exactly discourage. As a barb, I hate this because I have no choice but to take Megan's side. Oh, ding dong, who's that? Oh, Chelsea, it's Ben Shapiro. He's entered the chat. Yes, conservative commentator and fierce WAP hater Ben Shapiro was featured on a rap song called Facts. That was charting at number two under Megan's song, His. And I don't know, some enterprising Zoomer who I hope is interning at the Daily Wire to destroy it from within must have said, hey, Ben, you should at Megan. And while you're at it, tweet Nicki Minaj and say she's right about Megan's flow. To which Minaj tweeted back, That his rap track wasn't bad, but it definitely sounds like Roman's Revenge when the beat first comes in. Have we not even talked about Bigfoot yet? No, now we've gotten to Sunday. That's everything that happened between Friday and Saturday. So Nikki releases Bigfoot, her diss track. She went out of her way to say it wasn't a diss track, which is embarrassing because it's very much a diss track. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like diss tracks shouldn't be singles. Like, they're not good, you know? That's the thing that sucks about all of this, like... FTCU is a pretty good song, but like Hiss is like not that good. Bigfoot is like straight up bad. Yes, it's bad, but it's not even original. It's essentially everything that she said over the last 36 hours in various Instagram lives. I know. She should have really stopped herself or she should have just taken the time to make a truly good song because that would be the ultimate revenge. Have you heard the acapella version? Because she released two songs, Bigfoot and then Bigfoot acapella. Well, she released the acapella version because she wants people to like remix it. That's the reasoning for the acapella version. The thing that I found to be the spookiest part of all was just the, I want to call it spoken word part of the song at the end of the song. You mean the whispering at the end? So? You don't want to test me. If I was Megan, I would be getting like secret service level security. I'm sure she was laughing. I know, but like, it's just so creepy like she's using a voice that one would use to tell a ghost story and not since that Tori Amos Eminem cover have I been so frightened by a piece of music 
It's also not great that on Monday, every morning show covered this and did not like the track either. Like, this did not work in her favor. And from what I understand, what I'm gleaning from the internet, the barbs had been pushed to their brink trying to defend this song, saying like, no, 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 that's a joke song. The real song is coming. It's sad because Nikki is so talented, but I just see things getting very dark for her in the future. It's pretty dark already. It's very dark already. Anyway, let's move on to something less depressing. Oh, like the Condé Nast strike? <laughs> so last Tuesday, about 400 of Condé Nast union members staged a one-day strike, the first ever in the company's history, to protest the planned layoffs of 5% of the Condé Nast workforce and Condé Nast unfair negotiation practices with the union. This was to coincide with the announcement of the 96 Academy Awards nominations. I thought it was pretty ingenious that at the World Trade Center offices, it featured a red carpet and a step and repeat for their protest. I also heard that they were chanting, bosses wear Prada, workers get nada. A pretty good chant, yeah. Pretty good. But to be fair, those high-level editors get all kinds of perks. Like, they get free Prada, or at the very least, discounts. They get their Prada for nada, is your point. Or as we know, people who historically have ascended at Vogue have been independently wealthy, so. <laughs> this is also coming a week after Condé Nast unceremoniously folded Pitchfork into GQ magazine and fired its staff. My first thought was like, who's still reading Pitchfork? Like, I have been off Pitchfork since they panned Lana Del Rey's first album. I guess what's more confusing for me is not since they took Details magazine and made it a men's magazine, is there a more curious choice of like, why GQ of all things? Fold Pitchfork into, I don't know, Bon Appetit. <laughs> okay, that makes even less sense. But it seems like people that are obsessed with food and have very specific opinions would also have the same very specific <laughs> opinions about music. I don't know about that take, Lauren. I'm sorry. I can't be get behind that. You you don't think that there could be a listicle like what Lana Del Rey album to make with your lemon orzo tonight or something? Oh my god. Okay, but the other reason I wanted to bring this up is that Allison Hussey, a former Pitchfork staff writer, wrote on X that a bizarre detail of their firing was that Anna Wintour was seated indoors at a conference table and did not remove her sunglasses while she was telling us that we were about to get canned. Okay, but I don't think that's disrespectful so much as just who Anna Wintour is. Like, we both read Amy O'Dell's biography of her, which was very well-researched, and since the 1970s, she has been wearing sunglasses at inappropriate times. I think it more has to do with potentially, like, a neurodivergent light sensitivity issue than, like a way of asserting dominance over people. And I believe in that book as well, she explains that she has a very heavy prescription in those sunglasses, which is probably why she wears them indoors. I mean, it's for multiple reasons. She'd rather wear sunglasses than just straight up glasses. Yeah. So think about it this way. She wanted to see your faces in 2020 vision when she fired you guys. Honestly, if she wasn't wearing sunglasses when she fired me, I would be disappointed. Also a notable thing about this Condé Nast strike is that Anne Hathaway was in the middle of a photo shoot while this was going on. And when she heard about it, she walked out of that photo shoot and made sure her publicist told every publication that. She uh, can't be scabbing. Little weird that her team was not aware of this beforehand, but whatever, go off. <laughs> in the article, the source was like, and she walked off, she was just in the makeup chair, she did not shoot a single photo. It's like, oh no, we were spared <laughs> from another boring Vanity Fair photo shoot. Whatever will we do? More bad news for us, in a recent New Yorker profile written by the brilliant Rachel Syme, Sofia Coppola revealed that she would no longer be making the limited series adaptation of Edith Wharton's Custom of the Country that would have starred Florence Pugh. Can you guess why? I don't know, because On the Rocks didn't do so well for them. On the Rocks had a curmudgeonly man that they could get their heads around. Um, in the profile, Sofia Coppola says that Apple pulled their funding because they just couldn't get their heads around a flawed character. A flawed female character, I should say. So annoying, because I feel like I am an Apple TV subscriber, but I never find anything to watch on Apple TV+. Plus. Like, I watched Severance, I watched that Taylor Swift folklore movie, and I watched On the Rocks. But I think that's been it. 
Oh, and I watched that Velvet Underground documentary. But when have you ever gone to Apple TV Plus? Like, I don't think they make television shows for women. We should say they don't make shows for us. This would have brought our asses to Apple TV Plus. Look, we can't threaten to cancel any subscription service for the mere fact that we have a pop culture podcast and we have to have every subscription service. Far be it that there's something we have to watch on one of them. I think we would have heavily fucked with this show. I mean, the book is a satirical look at the material wealth and gender roles in Gilded Age society. I mean, Apple TV, don't you want your own competing Gilded Age show? Well, also, it sounds like this was in the works pre-Gilded Age. So I bet when Gilded Age came out, she was like, fuck. I wonder if Sofia Coppola has those thoughts of like, well, it's done already. I feel like if you're Sofia Coppola, it's like, well, they didn't do it the way I would do it. No, of course not. But it would be annoying if you were trying to get a Gilded Age type limited series off the ground and then it gets canned and then the Gilded Age comes out. By the way, guys, I am watching the Gilded Age. We will do a VIP episode about it soon. It's just hard because like I can't convince my wife to watch it with me. And so I have to like, you know, sneak in little episodes here and there. So funny. I couldn't convince Paul to watch it with me either. He was like, let's watch an episode. And we did in 20 minutes. And he was like, okay, maybe not. You know what? We should have just watched it together, like on a Sunday or something, or tried to get at least the first like five episodes or something. You know what? Let's do that for season two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> People, of course, love to call Sofia Coppola a Nepo baby. I'm not here to say that she's not, but her own father has spent the last 10 years financing his own movies. That man literally created a wine company and is it hotels that he has? Basically to fund his film habit. So I'm a little surprised that they have him paired together for financing for one of her films. Well, anyway, this sucks. Horrible news. Hate it. All right. What we've been watching, which is not as dreary as what we just talked about, I think. True Detective or American Nightmare? <laughs> I mean, all of it. But yeah, do you want to discuss True Detective Night Country? Yeah, let's start with True Detective. I fucking love this show. It scares the shit out of me. But I think that Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese are fabulous. I'm actually glad that we're talking about this a few weeks in. You were in Australia when the first episode premiered, but the vibe on the internet was that everyone fucking hated the first episode, which is like, guys, it is a six-hour mystery slash horror show. Like, the first episode is going to be all set up. Was that the consensus? Because I feel like everyone I know is watching this show. Everyone's watching it, but yeah, that was like the weird take the day after the first episode was like, this fucking sucks. The first episode was great. I don't know what these people are talking about. And I'm so glad that we learned in episode three that the Kaylee Reese character is bisexual because both of them being straight was not computing for me. Oh yeah, spoiler alert for people who haven't watched this show yet. Spoiler alert for these sex scenes that are like jump scares. I hesitated to say this to you on the pod, but I, it does feel weird to see Jodie Foster just get like fucking railed by a guy. <laughs> I know. Well, also to see the Kaylee Reese character aggressively writing that D. I was like, wait, come again? <laughs> come again, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the Jodie Foster character. Like Jodie Foster can play anyone, but I feel like she is so good at these like defiant, abrasive characters. Like this character is a little bit like her character in Contact in that respect. Right. But I think it's fascinating that she's playing sort of the cliche of the take no shit small town detective, but also the town tramp. Like that's never the same character. I am in a place with this show, though, where I'm like, wait, who is that? What is happening? Because the family dynamics of Jodie Foster and John Hawks, who is her ex-husband, that much I know. They are on the same police force. She left Alaska at some point, has now come back. They have a son or is that John Hawks's son? I feel like that's his son. Because she says son, but then in the third episode, he's like, my cousin can tell us about frozen bodies. I find it really hard to tell the men apart. I mean, that is true. That is already an issue for you. And then you add like zero visibility Alaska wind chill. And it's... yeah, you add those Canada goose parkas and it just gets really confusing. So it seems that there are two cases going on simultaneously, two mysteries, one that happened pre-show. The murder 
martyred indigenous activist. Right. That is like the white whale for the Kaylee Reese character. And then we have the, I don't know how else to describe it, freakish death of this group of scientists. Lumped together in, in the ice, which a woman finds because the ghost of her dead husband brought her there who is the father of Matthew McConaughey's character from season one of True Detective. Love it. Well, you know who doesn't love it, Chelsea, would be Nick Pizzoletto, who created True Detective season one, two, and three, but he very specifically on his Instagram bio is like, but not Night Country. Okay, he's just salty because it's popular. So this season, the showrunner is Issa Lopez, and I do appreciate that she is leaning into the supernatural feeling that was heavy throughout season one of True Detective to the point where I thought that the Yellow King was just going to be a supernatural monster. And I was okay with that. But that was not the case. No, and it bummed me out. And I'm glad we're getting <laughs> back to this supernaturalness. Yeah, can we also talk about this haunting, haunting use of twist and shout? Like it's even scarier than Bigfoot. It's like a, a Conjuring movie or some <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's so fucking scary. But also it's like so cold. Like every scene in the show like someone is like freezing so it feels so cozy to just like curl up on the couch under a blanket and watch it very wise that they release this in january and not june or something yeah a super spoiler if you've not seen the most recent episode can we talk about the last scene in episode three? Oh, i'm traumatized by it okay so one of the ice men survived and he's had both his legs amputated, another arm amputated. His extremities are blackened. He is now blinded. I would not want to survive that. I don't think it's ethical to make someone survive that. Oh, no, I'm absolutely with you. It would be like if the air freshener guy from Seven actually just lived. And they were like, okay, let's just keep this going. Yeah. There's a scene in Usual Suspects with a heavily burned person where it's like, don't ask him questions. What do you mean? Just because he's up. Like Jodie Foster's like, what happened that night? And he's like, Arr! some fight happens in the lobby. Jodie Foster goes to break it up. And again, this is shot like a goddamn Blumhouse film. From the hallway, you see Kaylee Reese. And in the background, you uh. just see that man sit up and he's like, hello, Annabelle, or whatever her name is, Anna Marie. You're right. It's very conjuring. Your mother wants to let me know. You almost think he's going to say your mother sucks dicks in hell or something. Yeah, like it's so true. <laughs> so true. I but <laughs> this man has a message from her mother and then dies. So, so far, lots of questions. Can't wait for the answers. Shall we get into another fucked up show? American Nightmare, the docuseries that recently aired on Netflix, also known as the true story of the real life Gone Girl, question mark? <laughs> As a Dateline fanatic, I do remember seeing a Dateline story. I think multiple Dateline stories about uh, Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn who survived a kidnapping. They were woken up in the middle of the night. Aaron Quinn is told not to do anything, that there are cameras filming him constantly, and they take his girlfriend, Denise Hutchins, even though the kidnappers say, oh, we were here for your ex-fiance, but I guess we'll just take her instead. He decides to go to the comps. He's interrogated. 36 hours later, Denise goes from Vallejo down to Huntington Beach, where her father is, uh, and mysteriously reappears, saying that she was released by her kidnappers. And from that moment on, the police in Vallejo are just like, oh, this is exactly like the plot of Gone Girl, which came out a year ago, so this is a hoax. Anyway, bye, no more police work. Well, also, they just didn't believe, what was the guy's name? Aaron Quinn. They didn't believe Aaron Quinn because, to be fair, when they were interrogating him, like, his behavior was a bit bizarre. Like, he kind of didn't seem that concerned about it, but I think it's more that he's just kind of a himbo. Like, I was surprised when he had the wherewithal to ask for a lawyer. And again, this happened in 2015. I feel like in the last nine years, people have become a little more fluent through listening to true crime podcasts and, and these Netflix docuseries. Ask for a lawyer. Always, always, always. And don't let them offer you a beverage. Do I want to take a lie detector test? I'd rather not. No. <laughs> yeah, it's truly 
horrifying what happened to them. And I feel like their settlement should have been a lot bigger. It was a kidnapper with a conscience because he became increasingly upset that no one believed Denise and wrote multiple letters to a journalist in Vallejo who passed this on to the police who were like, no, we're okay. We don't need to read this. Also, the fact that they took his cell phone and then just like didn't bother to like trace the calls or anything because she was held for ransom. The first episode is his perspective. The second episode is her perspective. And the third episode is the resolution of all of this. Although, is there much of a resolution? Not really. I just want to hug both of them, honestly. It's horrifying, but I appreciate that this limited series is like brief and snappy. Three episodes. We never get three episodes of anything. We get 10 episodes of everything. A very horrifying part in Denise's episode is that she's sexually assaulted. She's sexually assaulted twice because they need some sort of collateral that if she talks, we're going to release this on the internet. To which I say, do it. Fine. I mean, at this point, I, I'm sure there are nude photos of me on the internet. One. Wait, what? I don't, I'm just assuming between all of the sexting I've done, like, would I be surprised if my tits were on the internet? No. Sorry, dad. And two, at, <laughs> at this point in my lifetime, I wouldn't be surprised if AI porn will be made of me. Who's making AI porn of you? I am just getting ready for this reality, <laughs> Chelsea. So the third part is the person that actually perpetrated this, which was a man named Matthew Mueller. When this episode happened, it unlocked like, oh, I've, I've seen all of this in a Dateline episode he did this to another girl which he says in his letter defending denise hutchins of like if you don't believe her i'm going to do this again which he does 40 miles away in dublin california the father fights him off he leaves his cell phone there that leads to the police in dublin finding his hideout in tahoe and the one good detective, of course, a female. The Olivia Benson. The Olivia Benson of the Dublin, California Police Department finds these blacked out goggles with the blonde hair in it. Having watched several Dateline episodes about this, my only issue with this documentary is all of that information from beginning to end was in a Dateline episode. I was left a tad unsatisfied that there was not more explanation or investigation about his crimes. Why does he have these elaborate setups? There's no answer about if there were other people. I mean, Aaron says, like, we know there were other people. Were there not? Was he, was that one of the lies that this Matthew Muller guy said? Well, this documentary posits that he kind of went from being a peeping Tom right. and it escalated to this kidnapping and this rape. I just wish there was a little bit more explanation if we're going to turn Dateline episodes into three-part documentaries. Yeah, no, I hear that. And I know that people have been asking us to talk about the second Natalia Grace documentary. I don't think you've watched it, Chelsea. I got two and a half parts in. There's no there there. Basically, the best that they can figure is that the mom that adopted her, remember how everyone was like, ooh, um, oh my God, this is like a real life orphan. Or like, did that movie get it from this case? It's like, wait, no, that movie came out a year before she was even adopted. Now they think the mom just watched Orphan and was like, oh, I'm going to reverse engineer this storyline. Good grief on Netflix. <laughs> what did you think? Or should we talk about what this movie is about first a little bit? Yeah, it came out, I think, two weeks ago. Yeah, I saw it in Australia. Dan Levy wrote and directed this film. If I wrote and directed a film I starred in, I would also say that I live in a lovely apartment, a lovely flat in London as well. I just want to be in whatever income bracket you need to be in to have this lifestyle. Yeah, well, obviously we learned throughout the film it's hard to maintain. So Dan Levy is married to Luke Evans. Again, if I wrote a film that I starred in, I would also write that I was married to Luke Evans. Luke Evans is a novelist with a hit series of books that are being adapted into movies that Dan Levy illustrates the book covers for. Yes, and they're a very, very happy couple. 
until spoiler alert that's not really a spoiler this happens in the first scene the boyfriend dies in a car accident and the film really chronicles the next year of the Dan Levy character's life as he recovers yes as he finds himself again starts dating and learns mysterious things about Luke Evans I just want to say I have never seen more accurate representation of a rich gay man's apartment like the Trudon candles are blazing also, I get it because it's like he was stuck doing Shit's Creek for so long. That was not a glamorous show. That was very simple sets. I could understand how as a creator, you would just want to do something opulent and over the top like this. Yeah, you're like, you know what? I think that we live in London in a really ritzy neighborhood. And um, I find out that my husband had a secret apartment in Paris that I must go to with my two friends. It's funny because I imagine that Netflix wanted him to make a gay rom-com and we've gotten gay rom-coms, but I don't think we've gotten a great one yet. Like we haven't gotten a gay rom-com that could go toe to toe with Sleepless in Seattle or some shit, but he instead decides to make this movie that's kind of like a little bit of gay rom-com energy, but it's more of a like gay before sunset meets like blue movie that's part of the Three Colors trilogy with Juliette Binoche. Have you seen that? I have. That's my favorite of the Colors trilogy. Yes. Oh, my favorite's red. It's not a competition. <laughs> um, she loses her partner in a car crash as well, right? Her partner and I child. Think so. yeah. yeah. So I have to admit something slightly embarrassing. I was waiting for a dramatic turn that never happened in the film. I know that I've spoken about this when I watch movies. Sometimes I write it in my own head. But Chell and I were texting about what we were going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. And it was in rapid succession. And Chell was like, you have to watch Good Grief. We'll talk about it in the next pod. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to watch Anatomy of a Fall. And then you texted, oh, yeah, we got to talk about the, the overlaps with Basic Instinct. And I thought you were like, I had just replied as you were writing. I thought what you meant was that there was a basic instinct turn in good grief. No, <laughs> you didn't notice the basic instinct anatomy of a fall parallels. No, no, no. I did. I mean, we didn't get into it when we talked about anatomy of a fall, but I was just like, because I write my response to you was like, wow, I didn't get that at all from the trailer. And you were like, just wait, you wait and see. <laughs> Um, cause there are, uh, twists in good grief, but it was not a basic no. instinct. And it also, he's a novelist. So I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I think <laughs> I'm like, is the gay boyfriend he meets? Like, did he murder Luke Evans secretly? <laughs> like I kept waiting for that to happen. I'm like, wow, this is incredibly heartfelt and earnest. <laughs> You know what the twist that I expected in Good Grief was? You know how he was constantly meeting with his, I don't know, financial advisor, accountant, money manager, whoever the fuck that was, played yeah. by that fabulous woman who was also on Better Things. The mother of Pamela Adlon. Every time he was going in there, I kept expecting her to be like, babe, like you need to get a job. Like you have no money. <laughs> But, like, that was never a problem. So I think that some people will maybe, even though, of course, like, grief is universal, I think some people won't be able to relate to this because he does have such, like, a cushy existence. That said, I I was so happy to press play on this movie. I definitely enjoyed watching it. It also, Ruth Nega, fantastic. Himish Patel, incredible as the besties. A self-destructive straight girl and a, just an earnest, wants the best uh, gay best friend. Yeah. Well, also, they're all like creative people. So I feel like yeah. it did kind of capture that. Not since Girls has there been such a great satirical art scene. I mean, early on, it's Emma Corrin who played Princess Diana in The Crown and the character that Dan Levy meets explains that their parents just fund their their art gallery because they, they're terrible artists. We all know that person. I loved the funeral sequence. That felt like the closest to Schitt's Creek. The actress who eulogizes Luke Evans' novelist character by making it about herself and hoping that the third adaptation of his novel into a film will still happen. And yeah, I do love Dan Levy looking around like, is everyone seeing this? <laughs> well, and I think that his strength as a writer has always been really snappy one-liners. And we definitely got some good ones here. Like when he likened um, 
them extracting his dead husband's body from the wreckage of the vehicle to eating escargot. <laughs> and also, excellent use of that train don't stop there anymore. Yeah. A late era Elton John song. And do you remember the Justin Timberlake music video for that? I absolutely do not. <laughs> Wait, what? You know how that Drake video for pop star was just Justin Bieber lip syncing to the song. Right. This video is Justin Timberlake as young Elton John. I think it was directed by David LaChapelle. Maybe it wasn't. Yes, 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 yes. Also, the backlash to Justin Timberlake is so intense that I'm starting to become an apologist. You're a Justin Timberlake truther. (laughs) Okay, so we hate him because his career didn't end after the Janet Jackson Super Bowl performance, even though it was obvious planned in advance and he made the noble choice not to throw her under the bus and narc and still hasn't narked and then we hate him because he wanted Britney Spears to have an abortion because he didn't want to be a 19 year old father from Britney's perspective right you see how hurtful that moment in her life was understandably but there is also this ellipse of like you guys were never going to end up together because she writes this whole thing about like well, I was okay to get an abortion because we would get married and we would have a kid one day. And it was like, no. Yeah, that was a bad idea. More what I'm looking at and realizing is that looking at thumbnails to this Elton John video where Justin Timberlake is him, he should have played Elton John in that movie. Justin Timberlake is a better actor. Well, that's not true. His music actually used to be quite good. We're also forgetting about that, but it's easy to forget about that because his last album sucked. His new single is okay it's like a not catchy version of nick jonas's jealous that that is quite a read here's where he lost america when he decided to do the super bowl in what 2018 and he did not reunite in sync that's true and instead just did like his man in the woods routine that's where he lost america collectively the ego backfired at a certain point I just think like in the scheme of celebrities that have done fucked up shit, like this just isn't that bad. I feel like you're like, leave Justin like, Timberlake alone. At least he didn't alone. blind someone in a racially motivated attack. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look up Mark Wahlberg's Wikipedia. Anyway, zone of interest now? <laughs> <laughs> Should we play the bad news theme again? Okay, is it just me, or did you expect the fence to be a little bit taller? For those who haven't seen Zone of Interest, it is about Rudolf Haas, the commander at Auschwitz, who lives next door to Auschwitz. No, I mean, I wasn't surprised at the at the wall height. I was surprised at the wall height. I was surprised at the pool that they had in the backyard. This movie was so fucked up. Like, don't get me wrong, it was completely riveting, and it is certainly a original and necessary addition to the canon of Holocaust films, but it is not an easy watch. It's not an easy watch. I went to the Vista Theater that is now owned by Quentin Tarantino. It is a wonderful experience. There's going to be a, a coffee, a Pam Greer coffee shop. Oh, fuck yes. Like the gummy bears are Care Bear gummy bears. It's RC Cola is the Coca-Cola. They pipe in the, the audio from the movie when you're in the bathroom. Oh, that must have been fun for Zone of Interest. Yeah, I have never felt this way in a movie before where... The sound and the sound system in the theater, 20 minutes in, I was like, I think I'm going to vomit. Like, I feel that nauseous and ill. And the genius of the film is you do not see anything overt. Which is new for a Holocaust movie. I mean, not all of them, of course, but when I think of some of the most popular ones... Schindler's List, Pianist, what have you. They all have graphic violence in them. That is the horror that's being shown is how quotidian their life is. And there are these little moments that are not overtly explained. You just have to understand the inherent evilness, like when Sandra Hewler's character and the women of the house go through the clothing and jewelry that's delivered to them. I know. Or like when she's just casually putting on lipstick at her vanity. Like there are many sinister moments in film where women are applying lipstick. And I think this might be the scariest. 
Also, like, when this bitch is like, was it her mother or her mother-in-law? Her mother. That was visiting? She's, like, showing the yard, showing the garden to her mother, and you can hear, like, people screaming and, like, dogs barking and shit. It was like, this is the most fucked up shit I've ever seen. The most of a moral compass you get is the mother character who, in the afternoon is joking if the woman whose house she used to clean is in Auschwitz and how she was disappointed to lose the auction on her curtains by the evening when she can't sleep at night and she opens up the curtains and sees the smokestacks and then realizes what that must mean, that this isn't a work camp, this is an extermination camp, and she's gone by the next morning. What also makes this film so inventive, and that is why Jonathan Glazer is a genius, is there is this infrared night vision sequence that goes throughout the film of, I believe it's a girl that works in the Rudolf Haas household who is dropping apples for the... The people that are in the work camp, basically. Yes. Yeah, not since Silence of the Lambs have we seen such good night vision. And if you haven't seen the film... I think everyone should. It's hard to say that there are spoilers for the film. It is a true event. Rudolf Haas was a real person. Jonathan Glazer went through accounts of the Haas family living there. The irony is that Zone of Interest he is a book that he adapted, but kind of in name only. Zone of Interest is about a love triangle, and then he just hollowed all of that out. It was like, I like the title, and I, I like this about a family that lives next to Auschwitz, but that's it. Also, is Sandra Hewler my favorite actress? I think she is. I mean, this is the most unlikable character imaginable. Somehow this bitch is even less likable than the SS officer dad character. Yes, Rudolf Haas. But she does a great job of this, like, real housewives of Auschwitz shtick. Yeah, I mean, and the malevolence and the, the power she holds, like, Rudolf Haas is transferred. It is a movie that begs you to care about the the work minutia of someone that works at Auschwitz, where it's like, he didn't get that promotion. <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. Guys, we're not making light of this. No, we're not making light. But that kind of is, it's not a plot-driven film. That is kind of the biggest thing that happens. Right, and she refuses to leave. She's like, do you see my garden? Yeah, she's like, this is paradise. It's like, what? Your kid just found a jawbone in the fucking river down there. It's so fucking gross. The ending is amazing because you're watching this and it's a true event. And you're like, how is Jonathan Glazer going to end this film exactly? Spoilers, skip ahead for those who've seen the film. The fact that it flashes to the Auschwitz Museum modern day, that he, I took it to mean that he's vomiting and he's almost seeing the future that's going to happen. Yeah, I took it as just something within him. <laughs> Obviously knew that this was super fucked up. An amazing way to end this film. Yeah, I then, of course, went on Wikipedia and read about Rudolf Haas. And uh, it was not until he was going to be put to death did he realize the error of his ways. I'm just sad that the wife was not also <laughs> executed, frankly. Very true. The way that people talked about Oppenheimer of like, this movie changed me. This is a movie that's going to stay with you. It's like, no, no, no. This is a movie that's going to stay with you. And I think it's also going to change the kind of Holocaust movies we see in the future. Potentially. Um, Fashion. Anyway, <laughs> shall we move on to Couture? We may have organized this episode this incorrectly. Bad. Let's start with Margiela. Because what a gift this show was. Yeah, I mean, you and I are always primed and hyped for a Margiela collection, but I was genuinely surprised how much the general population was obsessed with this show. Yeah, because it's the kind of thing that is going to appeal to fashion insiders, of course. But yes, I too was surprised to see it get so much traction online, but it's so deserved because... It's not just the best collection he's done for Margiela and he's been there for a decade now, but it's one of the best collections he's ever done. And I just like, I don't know, I did not see this coming. Of course I knew he had it in him. It's evolutions on design ideas he's done before, but there's something about the culmination of everything, the clothes, the casting, the makeup that really ascended it. Well, it's much closer to what he was doing at Givenchy and Dior and his namesake label than recent Margiela collections. 
reactions. Of course, there was a lot of thematic overlap, but I think what happened is that when he got there, he was like, I really need to create a new identity for this brand and a new look for this brand and a look that isn't just what I did at Dior. And I think now we're kind of getting a, more of a synthesis of what he's been doing at Margiela for the last 10 years and the kind of stuff he was doing in the 90s. Because John Galliano's worldview is just a fascinating place. And I think this collection shows it. It's like part Weimar Germany debauchery meets like every era Madonna had in the early 90s. And then like with this collection, mix it in with the guy that Stanford dated that was really into collecting dolls. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely Stanford doll collector. There were so many different influences because he's he's staging this show in basically like a 1920s bar. The corsets are giving Edwardian era, very much influenced by Brzee's photographs. And then we have like the fetish clothing and the Merkins, which is giving, you know, old timey sex worker vibes. Right. And I know many people have written us and they're like, what do you think? What Margiela looks are people going to wear to the Oscars? None. No one will have the balls. <laughs> Unless Gwendolyn Christie is nominated for an Academy Award, no one's wearing this. Well, I think Kim Kardashian, I don't know if she would go full Merkin, but I think she's wearing this to the Met. To the Met, yes. To the Oscars, I don't think anyone is I going think to. it's unusual that she was at the show, and I think that says something. And I think that if she wore something from this collection, it could be like, it would be crazy. Yeah. She has the body for it, certainly. We were talking about this off mic. You made the great point that a lot of these pieces are worthy of going into this Met show that's going to happen in May anyway. Well, they're not yet in a state of decomposition, but because there are so many historical references, it makes sense as something to wear to that particular gala. I gotta say, a week on, I still haven't heard a peep about this. I'm pretty shocked that even the most social justice warrior of online fashion people I follow... Um, not one brought up that problematic incident that got him fired from Dior. This is not true because have you read the New York Times review? <laughs> I have not, no. Like the subheading of the New York Times review by Vanessa Friedman said, in celebrating John Galliano's return to his roots, have we somehow missed the point? It's like, girl, no. She, her, her argument was basically that like, this show isn't going to save fashion because Fashion is still corporate and still profit-driven. And her other point was that the era of his own work that he was referencing was like an era when fashion was like more problematic and abusive. And it's like, what? Like it truly the most deranged take because it's like, why can't we have anything nice? There has to be some sort of backlash or some sort of weird take. And it's just like, I don't know. I liked Alexander Fury's review for another magazine a lot. I liked Kathy Horn's review, of course, for the cut. That take is just, it's a bad faith argument. And I, they do this in the entertainment industry as well, where they're like, why can't we go back to the seventies when it was about art, fashion and films, just like the music industry, they're, they've always been profit driven. Like this whole idea of like, well, no, 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 at a different time, they didn't care about what profits as much. It's always been a capitalist industry. Also, one thing that I think got overlooked in this show was the shoes. Did you notice the shoes? As someone that is looking for wedding shoes, I did look at the last few white shoes and I was like, do I want to have my like arch completely canted forward? I could pull this off for like 15 minutes, right? Yeah, those were amazing, but I was more referring to the literal hooves. Like he took the tabby concept to the next level and made actual like horse boots. I mean, it was a matter of time before you became an anamorph. <laughs> Shout out to the male models who committed to this and got their waist down to like, I don't know, 21 inches. Truly crazy. Shout out to whoever choreographed their movements. Shout out to Pat McGrath, who slayed with the makeup as per use. They have certainly had one of the most fruitful and productive collaborations. And I truly hope that one day we get like a 500 page book of every fashion show they've ever done. And, and shout out to every special effects store whose glass skin products sold out in the last few days. 
Well, there's been a lot of discourse about like how did they do this, and I believe it has been solved. It is it is that Freeman's mask that you peel off, but it wasn't applied like we would apply it if we were putting on the mask. It was like diluted and then airbrushed onto their faces and then dried, and then like they did it in layers so that it had that effect. But I was just blown away because it's like, how has no one thought of this? Like glass skin has been a thing for almost a decade now, I would say. And she took that to the most extreme level. Honestly, when I first saw it, I thought it was like a maybe potentially 3D printed mask, like like the upscale version of the masks that the cheerleaders wear in Sugar and Spice to rob the bank. Right, yeah. Clear mask with the spray paint and makeup on it. Again, no one will wear it to the Academy Awards, but it was a great collection. But you know what someone might wear to the Academy Awards? Simone Rocha for Gautier. Here's hoping. Yeah, it was pretty in line with what we thought it was going to be, right? A, a play on his sailor motif, but, you know, her stripes, of course, are bows, pearls, lace-up, that salmon peach color that I really associate with his dresses. I was trying to imagine what it would look like before the show came out. And it's like when you actually see it, you're like, oh, of course that's what she would reference. Yeah. But I thought it was so beautiful. I love the horn tits. That I would love to see at the Oscars. If someone comes through with horn tits, it's all over. Yeah. I mean, I know that this is a couture collection, but I do wonder if things like the bow striped shirt, the sailor hats will get interpreted for a ready to wear price point. Cause I feel like these would sell like hotcakes if they weren't $10,000 each. I actually haven't really been keeping tabs on the price points. Like what from these couture shows are they actually selling? Cause I know they are selling some stuff. Certainly the jewelry, I can see a lot of people buying. And he seemed delighted by the collection. I'm sure he was. This is such a genius thing to do. Quite like The Daily Show not having a permanent host (laughs) and just having guest hosts. It, it works perfect for the attention economy and it's getting some of the most interesting work we see out of Fashion Week. Yes, they've certainly turned these couture shows into an event, but when they pick someone that isn't that major, it sucks. It's not like we like all of these. This was an especially good couture week and I don't know if it's because Kylie Jenner, the last two January couture seasons has gone, but it feels like there's more mass attention to couture that I've ever seen. I love hope it's not just because of Kylie Jenner but yes Kylie Jenner has made herself a constant presence at these shows for the last few seasons Kim is being a bit more selective so we're gonna talk about Chanel which I think (laughs) is going to be surprising for people you say that as if it's like there's a trigger warning involved in this yeah it seemed to me that the internet's reaction was like Fuck this collection. This is the worst collection that's ever been done for Chanel. And I don't know. Yeah, is it? Couture has always been a weak spot for Chanel. Even I don't think that's... No, come on. No, no, no. Even when Carl was designed... Look, no, definitely not when Carl... Come on. My point is, Couture is about craftsmanship. And I think that the narrow latitude with Chanel's design between the tweeds and the jackets, it is always going to look on the surface like ready-to-wear. Because that's something that you have to see in person. But that's a choice. Right? Look, it's like, I don't think there's anything particularly offensive about this collection. She doesn't want to take risks. And that's something that Karl Lagerfeld was actually good at. Like, he's working with a very specific look, but he did things to modernize it, to make it a little more contemporary. And I guess maybe her version of that is making Margaret Qualley look like a high fashion Pennywise. (laughs) I will say the middle part of the collection, which featured gowns, felt pretty inventive, and I did not hate it. But then the collection started to look like riffs on Molly Ringwald's pretty and pink prom dress, and I got angry again. See, I like this collection more than the average Chanel collection because it's so girly. Because it's in the same world as the Simone Rocha Gautier collection in the sense that it's all about pastel and tulle and that kind of stuff like that that's just like an aesthetic that I like personally but I'm not like excited by it definitely not excited by the first half I do not want to see a floral applique bra over a white shirt 
paired with a tool skirt, like it's a demented Project Runway challenge to design a rejected Carrie Bradshaw outfit. I actually didn't hate this one. I didn't hate this one, and I didn't hate whatever that one was that was very much inspired by the 90s, where there was all the photographers huddled around the runway. And right. It was like, all like, loved that. Wow. I feel like this episode is the most we've gotten like Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we get heated when Nicki Minaj and Chanel is referenced. <laughs> God forbid these two ever do a collaboration. It might end the podcast. One last thing. Kardash, Aholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. You're just a witch, and I hate you. People were very upset when People Magazine ran a headline that said, Kim Kardashian to produce and star in upcoming docuseries about Elizabeth Taylor. Now, this is a pretty clickbaity headline because from that, you're like, wait, it's a docuseries, but Kim's starring in it. So is like Kim going to be Elizabeth Taylor in dramatic reenactments or something? No, she's like going to be a talking head. For some reason, Kim Kardashian was the last person to ever interview Elizabeth Taylor before she died. What? For what? I don't know. That seems like an interview magazine situation, potentially circa 2008 or whenever that was. When did she die? Uh, Elizabeth Taylor died in 2011. I mean, this press release does not give context for why Kim was the last person to interview her. It's also crazy to think what in the, uh, what is Kris Jenner's company called? In the Car Jenner Calabasas offices, there's just a vault that has the last interview that Kim did with Elizabeth Taylor. This very much feels like the book, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> okay. I would love to watch this, and I will watch this. I mean, we have to watch this. I'll watch anything Elizabeth Taylor related. All right, guys, we will be back next week with a special mailbag, Valentine's Day, and pop culture themed episode. Yes, and buy tickets to our tour. We have to keep saying this shit because our touring agent guy keeps sending us emails about it, so do that, or buy tickets to see John Waters at Cine Winery. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, preferably both. But yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.